Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. For the first part of this hour, we listen back to a conversation from October of 2022 that focused on research into depression. My guest was Dr. Nicholas Trapp, an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Iowa, the lead author of a study published in 2022 that found distinct brain networks associated with risk and resilience in depression. I began by asking Dr. Trapp to start by sharing some background on what led up to the study. Yeah, sure. So the objective of this study was to take this really rich resource we have at the University of Iowa uh, called the Iowa Brain Lesion Registry, Um, And it's building on decades of research that has happened uh, at the University of Iowa and at other institutions, really looking for brain correlates of different behavioral symptoms, uh, in this case, specifically depression. And so there's been studies, uh, again, um, by some people in the Department of Psychiatry and in neuropsychology and neurology here at Iowa that have looked at this question to see, can we identify specific areas of the brain that, you know, if they're damaged, injured, or lesioned, Um, might put you at a higher risk uh, for having depressive symptoms after the lesion. Give us an overview of what you looked at in this study. You did identify two distinct brain networks, I understand. Yeah, correct. So again, um, we have this very rich resource here at Iowa, probably uh, one of the largest lesion registries in the world. Um, where we're able to look at these correlations between different symptoms. And so uh, what we found with this study was we, we took um, over 500 uh, patients um, in the University of Iowa system that had uh, some type of brain lesion, again, from a stroke or other cause, traumatic brain injury. Uh, and we tried to correlate that using some artificial intelligence uh, metrics uh, with specific post-stroke uh, or post-lesion depressive bur- symptom burden. And so uh, we found some areas of the brain, uh, as you mentioned, that are associated with a higher depressive symptom burden after the injury. And also, very interestingly, some areas of the brain that after the lesion were associated with less report of depression. Mm, so actually, just to touch on it, that's fascinating. You could, you could have a brain injury or a, a lesion that would actually lessen, lessen depressive symptom, symptoms? So that's the correlation we did find in this study. As to exactly what that means, that's something we're still, uh, you know, trying to work on and parse out. Obviously, that could mean that lesioning that area does have, um, you know, potential for therapeutic benefit for, um, you know, depressive symptoms. It could also mean that it just causes people to be less aware of depressive symptoms uh, or to report symptoms less. Uh, So there are some complications with that association, but I would say it's very uh, exciting and promising and and potentially uh, lends um, some interesting insights into the potential pathophysiology of depression as an illness. Back to the other key takeaways uh, from this study. I understand you use neuroimaging uh, to look at different, these different brain networks and sort of how they communicate with each other. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So so there's kind of looking at the structural brain, which is um, lesions to specific areas, you know, in the frontal cortex or other regions. Uh, but then also we know a lot more um, now than we might have known 20, 30, 40 years ago about brain networks, which are areas of the brain uh, that talk to each other. They're not necessarily areas that are directly near each other in the brain. 
And these different networks, mm -hmm. there's been some that have been described uh, repeatedly in the literature now, are associated with specific cognitive functions. And so, uh, for example, one is called, probably one of the best known is something called the default mode network, which is uh, areas of the brain that are active when a person is at rest. It's kind of a daydreaming network, and a network that's involved with self-introspection. Um, and then there's other networks that are involved in attention, other, other cognitive processes. And so not only did we find these lesions um, were associated with specific regions of the brain, but those regions actually all lined up to, uh, to specific brain networks. And it gives us, again, maybe a deeper understanding of beyond just these structural lesions, which people have looked at for decades and have struggled to find uh, correlations between depression and a specific brain region. Maybe this is a network phenomenon. And I think that's really exciting, especially um, because it really lends credence to the idea that depression is a, a brain illness and uh, I think, uh, you know, helps to destigmatize it in some sense. Mm -hmm. Talk more about the positive takeaways from the, the study results. Uh, what do you look to hear and, and talk to people who may suffer from clinical depression, may have loved ones who suffer? What are, the, what are the direct things that should be noted by those listening who, who suffer in those ways? Sure. So like I mentioned, this was a study of people who had a brain lesion and then uh, developed a depressive symptoms after the lesion. Um, so it is a, a correlative study in a, in, a, in a sample that has a, an injury leading to their depression. However, um, from what we know about pathophysiology of depression, there are some uh, correlates between those type of depressive episodes and depressive episodes that might occur spontaneously um, due to other, other causes or genetic origins. And uh, so I think this, uh, again, it, it kind of gives us a sense. This is a, a brain illness. This is, I think, a, an illness that people should take very seriously and, and seek treatment for. Um, and uh, also it kind of gives us a sense of the fact that there, there may be targeted strategies we can use uh, to specific areas um, it, that we might be able to use to increase or decrease activity in the brain and, and potentially develop therapeutic targets down the road. Let's talk about those therapies because um, you know you're, you're aware of course when we discuss in our families among loved ones among friends uh, grappling with depression how to remedy it how to improve the state of the person uh, pharmacological remedies therapies are most often mentioned but uh, your expertise lies with brain stimulation i understand Talk about the difference uh, there and, and what you actually do. Yeah, absolutely. So so my, uh, I guess, part of my work is working with neuroscience research, working with these patients uh, in the Iowa Lesion Registry with a great team of people, including Aaron Bose and Dan Trinnell and Joel Bruss um, and Ken Manzel, who all helped uh, immense, immensely with that study. Uh, but And then my clinical aspect of my job is, is doing uh, treatments, which are procedural-based techniques uh, for treating psychiatric illnesses. And this is kind of a new branch of therapeutics uh, we use in psychiatry. It's been uh, deemed interventional psychiatry or falls under the umbrella of this new, uh, I'd say, subspecialty within psychiatry called interventional psychiatry. And uh, most people, I think, have heard of psychotherapy treatments, 
uh, medication-based treatments, which very much have their place in our, in our effective um, for different types of depression, mood disorders. However, there's this new arm of treatments that has really come around, I'd say, in, in the last couple decades uh, using, uh, I guess, the one we use most frequently, something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. But there's um, several other treatments that uh, we use uh, that basically use different physical properties of magnetics and uh, electrical energy to stimulate different regions of the brain. Um, and so this ties, again, back to that the research that we're doing where these uh, these treatments allow us to potentially uh, increase activity or inhibit activity in different regions of the brain to try to repair um, or modulate uh, these um, damaged brain networks. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you talk about that, you call it new, but talk about how it's related to what I'll just call this a dark history of trying to, to uh, well, I'll just name them, uh, lobotomies, shock therapy. Um, talk about how these new therapies relate or do not relate to to, to those uh, older therapies. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. There has been kind of a dark history in psychiatry. And I I think uh, immediately people throw out all of that research and all of that um, kind of clinical experience from 50, 60, 70 years ago where uh, they they did things like uh, prefrontal lobotomies, which is, you know, using a sharp metal probe to uh, damage the white matter tracts in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Um, and these these procedures had a lot of side effects and a lot of problems, despite um, the researchers at the time reporting good results. And it kind of led to, I think, some mistrust in the field of psychiatry. So, you know, these areas of the brain are certainly implicated in depression. Um, and so I think there there is uh, some... I guess, important insights to gather from that, that, you know, I'd say large tragedy that occurred in psychiatry. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we can potentially use these newer therapies to do uh, different types of brain modulation that don't necessarily require causing a lesion in the brain to activate or deactivate these brain structures and, and potentially get the therapeutic benefits without the side effects. Um, and I will also say, as I'm a, an electroconvulsive therapy psychiatrist, that uh, I would not lump electroconvulsive therapy in with uh, prefrontal lobotomy. Electroconvulsive therapy is a treatment that mm. actually has uh, very good efficacy in in very treatment resistant depression and other conditions such as catatonia. And so, uh, you know, I think they they do get lumped together for various reasons reasons, including uh, uh, I think some things that have um, been put out in the media in the past uh, conflating yeah. them. But I I view them very differently. What about a short course or a few sentences on what I understand is a main thing that you treat clinically, treatment-resistant depression, or have we already touched on that in a certain sense? Sure, yeah. So treatment-resistant depression, uh, you know, it's defined differently in the literature, but the most common definition, I would say, is uh, someone who has uh, recurrent depression that has failed uh, two adequate trials of medication, uh, an adequate meaning it's been prescribed for a long enough period of time at a, an appropriate dosage. And a lot of times, patients that fall into that category uh, struggle to respond to a third or a fourth medication. Um, And so there's, uh, again, other things such as interventional psychiatry that sometimes we'll turn to in those cases uh, in the appropriate patient um, to try to um, offer them something that uh, is, I'd say, new, novel, and also um, has a different mechanism of action than, than medication and therapy. Uh, to to hopefully um, break that depression because the the longer somebody's stuck in a depressive episode, often the harder it is to get them out. So we want to we do want to treat depression, clinical depression, ag- aggressively. 
Dr. Trapp, in the final minute, and we only have a minute, give us a sense of where all this is going in the future. How fast uh, for those suffering from, from depression? What, what are your hopes for the future? Yeah, so like I said, we have treatments that are working faster. Um, I think that's uh, very exciting for this field. We're, we're learning more and more, again, about all these, I'd say at this point, correlates of depression. We know so much about the, the pathophysiology. We just don't know what the, the etiology of depression is, what, what's causing all these downstream effects we can pick up with uh, brain imaging and other, um, other techniques. Um, so I think there's, there's a whole bunch we're learning, and we're going to I think those things will eventually collide where the things we're learning about what causes depression, what contributes to depression, and these uh, improved neurotechnology-based treatments uh, will collide where we'll um, hopefully one day understand what's causing depression. I think that's going to lead to uh, you know, better and better therapies for it. Okay. University of Iowa psychiatrist Dr. Nicholas Trapp, uh, thank you for joining us this half hour. Thank you so much. A conversation with University of Iowa psychiatrist Dr. Nicholas Trapp, recorded in October of 2022. Coming up after a short break, a conversation from January of 2023 on Dry January, the practice of taking a month-long break from consuming any alcohol. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Do you plan to take a break from drinking alcohol during so-called dry January? Well, next, we listen back to a discussion from this past year on the dry January phenomenon. I was joined by Paul Gilbert of the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Paul specializes in studying alcohol use and misuse. But I started the program with an Iowan who had just written a memoir about his struggles with alcohol his recognition that he was a functioning alcoholic and also on his path to recovery. Before joining the faculty at the University of Iowa School of Journalism, Don McLeese was an award-winning music journalist, a popular music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times, senior editor at No Depression, and a frequent contributor to Rolling Stone magazine. At the time of this discussion, in January of 2023, he'd just come out with a new book titled Slippery Steps, Rolling and Tumbling Toward Sobriety. Don McLeese in our Des Moines studio, welcome to you. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Well, you're originally from Chicago. You now live in West Des Moines, and this is quite a story uh, you have in your fourth book. I'd like to read just a couple passages from The Dust Jacket, it gives us a good sense of what this is all about. Slippery Steps, you write, isn't your typical hell and back recovery memoir. I never intended to quit drinking, rarely gave it a thought. I'd spent decades as a successful and productive journalist. I was a loving father and husband. My life worked and worked well until it didn't. Freedom from drinking has enriched my life in many ways I'd never imagined. I'd been numbing myself to sleep and sleepwalking my way through life. It's never too late to wake up. This is a book about how the worst day of my life 
turned out to be one of the best. It's pretty powerful, Don, and, and the reading, this account you give is so powerful. I wonder if I can ask you to to read uh, the first few paragraphs of where you start this book, and it is actually that day that you refer to as the worst in your life and one of the best. Could you start us off with uh, how your memoir begins? I would be happy to, Ben. And yes, this does focus on the worst aspect of it. Chapter one, it was a drunk and stormy night. The flashlight shot through my stupor like a laser beam to the skull, sparking the first faint glimmers of consciousness. Above me, a male voice with calm authority asked, are you all right, sir? His concern was impersonal. I could tell before opening my eyes that I didn't know him and that he didn't know me. He had been summoned in some official capacity. He was probably half my age. Was I all right? I suppose I was, still breathing, semi-conscious, feeling no pain. So I mumbled something in the affirmative, likely unintelligible. But I really had no conception of what all right might mean. I wasn't exactly sure who I was, where I was, or why. I had no idea how long I had been there. It was very dark out, and it was still pouring, but was it 10 at night or 4 in the morning? There was lightning, and there was thunder. It was a hot August night in West Des Moines. I was lying on the grass, immobile, soaked. So the stranger's question made little sense to me, and neither did his presence. But the fact that he was talking to me, that he was there at all, suggested that something was very wrong and likely to get worse. Who was I? I was the guy who lived in the house that had this fenced backyard, which I had awakened to vaguely recognize. For some reason, I was on the ground, my predicament witnessed by someone I didn't know, someone who didn't belong here. Not that I belonged here, on the ground, in the downpour. As the fog in my head continued to clear, here's what I remembered. I had taken Rosie, our Cavalier King Charles puppy, out into the rain. She had been scared of the thunder and wouldn't go on her own. When I followed her down the soaked steps, I didn't feel like I'd had too much to drink. Almost a bottle of wine at dinner, then a cigar, followed by a full snifter or two of brandy. I knew what drunk felt like, and I wasn't, or hadn't been. If I'd returned inside, I likely would have felt the need for another glass or a joint or both before I could fall asleep, or more accurately, to pass out, as was my nightly ritual. Author Don McLeese reading from his latest work, uh, a memoir, Slippery Steps, Rolling and Tumbling Toward Sobriety. Um, I love, Don, the way you are so authentic, honest, and the way your prose captures the thoughts at that moment. Tell us a little bit more about what happened that night. Um, your wife comes out. <laughs> she asks you, what are you doing? I'm just resting, you say. I, you groaned, as if it were perfectly normal to take a quick nap outside in the middle of a severe thunderstorm. <laughs> exactly. It was the best I could come up with at the time. Uh, and she thought that perhaps I had been uh, struck by lightning. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, it was a very disorienting night. Uh, the details get grimmer as that passage goes on, that 
chapter goes on. It's it's kind of a, a drink noir kind of opening, but the book does have a happy ending. It right. gets lighter from there. Right, so, right. And, and I mean, but this has uh, grave consequences for you then. Uh, your wife, uh, Maria, was, uh, what, packing her bags after this night, right? She had her bags packed. I didn't know the next day whether, uh, you know, we would be living together, whether we would still be married. I, I woke up figuring that I would try to bargain again, and my bargain would be, okay, no more drinking after dinner. I will just, you know, limit myself to whatever I have with dinner. I discovered that that wouldn't work because when I got downstairs, all of the alcohol in the house had been poured out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her bags were packed. Uh, Whatever sort of bargaining I wanted to do, she really didn't have any interest in. You know, she'd had enough. Yeah. So it was at that point that I decided, hell, I'll show her, or heck, I'll show her. I will, I'll quit drinking. That's how I stumbled into my first uh, 12-step meeting. Yeah. Not, before, never intending to stick around. It's so interesting how you write about that meeting. But before we get there, give us a little more context about, well, and you describe in the book the decades of drinking, how you became this type of drinker, functioning alcoholic, as you describe it, and uh, why you, up until the very day you described, never thought of yourself as an alcoholic. I drank a lot, but I also had what I considered an extraordinary capacity for alcohol consumption. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about it being a progressive disease. Uh, I never thought it was a progressive disease. I just thought I was capable of drinking more and more without suffering any ill effects. It wasn't until I'd quit drinking that I realized how much of my life uh, revolved around alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we planned our vacations around alcohol, cruises, uh, going to Napa, going to Italy. We decided on dinner whether I felt like a red wine night or a white wine night or beer or margaritas or whatever. Alcohol played a a central and I thought kind of crucial role in my life, and it was part of what I considered the good life. Uh, I had never considered living the rest of my life uh, without alcohol, and even after that fateful night. And, and that night, by the way, it, uh, you know, it's a good thing to have a very embarrassing flame out on your last night of drinking because it kind of reminds you if something sneaks, if a rationalization sneaks into your head and tells you, you can drink like normal people. You just remember yourself passed out in the backyard and trying to climb up three steps and being unable to. And it, it comes back pretty clearly that that no, you you had a problem, and it's a good thing you're past it. If you've just joined us, Don McLeese, my guest uh, for this hour, Slippery Steps, Rolling and Tumbling Toward Sobriety, uh, his latest uh, book, uh, a memoir, as you've been hearing, uh, about his struggles with uh, being an alcoholic. Uh, let's, let's talk uh, about that first visit to AA. You describe it so vividly in the book, and I'm sure your experience is very similar or a variation of it, very similar to what many do when they go to their first AA meeting. Take us back to that moment. Well, what I what I figured out, I didn't know if my wife and I would be talking again, but I figured that if we did, I should show that I was serious about this, that I cared more about 
uh, our marriage than I did about drinking. So what I knew about AA is that AA preached abstinence, and it was a way of showing that you were serious about whatever your drinking problem was. I looked up for an AA meeting, hoping that I could find one, you know, sometime that week or, you know, whenever, the sooner the better. And I was amazed to discover that there were, at that time, maybe half a dozen meetings within two hours of right then, you know, that I could go to noon meetings, uh, that there was one noon meeting less than two miles from my house. Mm-hmm. And I figured that with all these various meetings, because there, there were dozens of meetings throughout that day and every day in Des Moines. And I figured that they can't be drawing that many people if there's so many meetings. And I walked into this uh, church meeting room, and it was just filled with well-dressed, happy, laughing people, maybe 75 of them. I don't know. I mean, I was in no condition to be counting. But uh, I was, uh, you know, it wasn't what I was anticipating, what I had anticipated. I mean, I I had the same feelings about alcoholism that a lot of people do. Brown bag, under the bridge, you know, life totally falling apart. Uh, And that definitely wasn't the case with the people who I... uh, who I first met and who I have continued to meet mm-hmm. uh, at 12-step meetings. And, and they were very, very warm and welcoming, which made me wonder, you know, what's the catch? Where, where do I have to <laughs> sign the blood oath? Uh, you know, right. what, what do I have to promise them? What do I have to tithe to get uh, what, whatever this is? Uh, and it turned out that there was no catch, that, that people wanted the best for me. Uh, and only wanted me to, you know, reach the kind of position that they had gotten to where I could again pass it along to other people, which is partly what I'm doing with this book. Yeah. And you realize, and you describe this in your your book, that your dependence on alcohol was a symptom of a deeper problem. What did you discover was that deeper problem? and How did you discover it? Part of how I have discovered all of this was writing this book. Uh, you know, what I had to do, I, I often learn what I really think about something through the process of writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I what I recognized through the writing of this, uh, because I was connecting the dots between incarnations of me that I barely recognized, uh, you know, that, uh, that I remember things happening to this person, but it seemed like a whole different person. But... What I have realized in AA and probably figured out before was that I felt some sort of emptiness inside. I felt like I needed something outside of myself to complete myself. Uh, you, you could talk about it as a spiritual emptiness. You could talk about it as a hole in your soul. You could just talk about you know, filling up something, filling up that void. Uh, And I think that part of what I was doing with alcohol was trying to fill this emptiness. Mm -hmm. And what I recognized after I had been in AA for a while is that in, in attempting to fill the hole, I had been merely digging a deeper hole. and so, yeah, that, that was part of the recovery process. And also writing about it then became part of the recovery process. In this book, you describe how at some point you realized you liked 
not drinking. Um, I, I think a total surprise to you and, and many others who've stopped drinking, even if they're not drinking to the level that you were. Tell us about that realization. Yeah, it was totally un- unanticipated. Uh, it was stunning for me. Uh, I really, you know, I had never thought of spending the rest of my life without alcohol. Uh, you know, I mean, alcohol enhanced a great meal. It was part of my going out to hear music. It was part of going to baseball games. It was, it was part of so many facets of my life. I had thought one of the many reasons I used alcohol, not, not that I needed any reasons, but one of the many reasons was as a way of managing my life, helping me to get to sleep. I really thought that unless I had a few drinks and maybe smoke a joint or whatever else to end the day, I could not shut off uh, you know, the, the hamster in my brain worrying around. I, I could not put in... You know, I, I could not put an end to work time and glide into playtime or into numbness or whatever. So, so I went decades thinking that I couldn't sleep without drinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, within and, and, a yeah. few weeks, I discovered that I was sleeping better than I had, uh, you know, as, as a very young person, well before I'd ever had a drink. Uh, so, so I realized how deluded I had been to be operating under that, uh, that fantasy for decades. How did it affect your family, your circle of friends uh, when you – I mean, this has been, what, 13 years ago? Uh, yes. Th- that you you haven't had a drink in 13 years? I have not had a drink in 13 years. Since that night, I have not had a drink. Congratulations. Well, thank you. What about the, what about the impact, the uh, repercussions for your, your family and friends? Well, I think most – I think overwhelmingly they've been glad for me. Not that all of them thought that I had a problem. A lot of my friends and – former colleagues said that they never saw me, you know, as someone who was troubled by alcohol, suffering uh, from any Mm -hmm. sort of uh, overindulgence. Uh, Of course, they didn't see me at home. By the end, you know, by the time we moved to Des Moines and much of my drinking was no longer tied to relaxing after meeting deadlines or going out with people, it was more at home, by myself, shutting out the rest of the world. So my drinking had taken a darker turn, and many of them never saw that. Uh, my wife certainly saw that, and and she is totally the, uh, the hero of this book because she saw it. She recognized it well before I did, and I would not have gotten sober and obviously would not have written the book without her. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, my kids... At least they tell me they always thought I was a good father. They didn't think I was neglectful. Uh, I was a good worker. I am a good worker. I'm very productive. But that, you know, all of that came at a cost. It was like push myself really hard and then relax hard. Relax hard with a few drinks. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have learned in the the 13 years since then that I can still work at a high level. Uh, you know, to my capacity, and uh, but not need um, the the other side of that equation. After a short break, we continue listening back to my conversation from 2023 with Iowa music journalist Don McLeese. His memoir focused on being a functioning alcoholic for decades. Also part of that show, Paul Gilbert of the UI College of Public Health. He studies alcohol use and misuse. 
Back with more in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's get back to my conversation with Don McLeese, author of the memoir Slippery Steps, Rolling and Tumbling Toward Sobriety. We just got this email from... Listener Adam in Davenport, he writes, I got through my 20s without drinking much, but joining political campaigns for work, I'm looking at you, Iowa caucus, led me to numb my feelings with alcohol. COVID then happened, and my drinking seemed normalized because many were also partaking. I'm 26 days sober, writes Adam from Davenport. Can't believe how much of a fog I've lived in over the past four years. I feel strong and excited about the future. Wow, uh, Don, that echoes a lot of what you have to say in this book, doesn't it? Absolutely, and congratulations, Adam. I know that those, you know, the first month is is hard. It gets easier. Uh, it does get easier. But what when I uh, when I went to my first meeting, I didn't know that I was going to stick around for a month, let alone forever. I mean, to me, one day at a time, which is you know one of the twelve step. Bo- catchphrases, uh, that was my escape clause. You know, I, I can make it through today, but if tomorrow I decide that this has all been an, an overcorrection or a big mistake or whatever, I can go back to drinking. Don, what do you think about the, the dry January as a phenomenon worldwide now? Well, I think it's fascinating. I think it's uh, emblematic of, of larger trends, you know, in, in terms of healthiness in terms of, you know, purifying ones. I mean, you know, not only are people giving up on alcohol, if only for short periods of time, but uh, soft drink, uh, you know, sales are down, fruit juices are up, uh, people, you know, people go to, to exercise rather than hit the bars. Uh, there, there's been a lot of uh, real change. And I also think that's one of the things that I I discuss in the book just how much things have changed over the course of a mm. lifetime mm. where where things might be considered problematic usage now that weren't considered that way earlier. Yep. So I think I think dry January is great. You know, give it a try if they, if that's what you want. In my case, I wasn't planning on sticking around that long and I discovered that I was better off not drinking. I I hadn't imagined that that would be the conclusion, but that was. Um, yeah. Uh, Don, joining us uh, now also, uh, Paul Gilbert. He's been on our program before, Associate Professor of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Paul specializes in studying alcohol use and misuse. Hello again. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Ben. Hello, Don. Thank you for inviting me back. You just got out of class. You've heard a little bit of our discussion from the last half hour, I Mm -hmm. understand. Um, uh, Give us your take on on dry January, Uh, a relatively new phenomenon, so sort of 10 years old, um, and uh, uh, insights. Uh, we had Adam from Davenport, but a lot of people gaining insights, myself included. Yeah, I I will tell you um, I'm a big fan of dry January, but because of the way uh, I, I think it's useful, the way to approach it, that it's a, a time 
to kind of adjustment or a self-check. Um, you're right. It's a relatively recent phenomenon. It originated, it's got a little bit more history in the UK, but it's gaining popularity here in the US and around the world. And it, it falls in January, and that's a bit intentional coming after the holiday season when a lot of us indulge, do things to excess, whether it's spending or eating or drinking is often involved in a lot of our holiday celebrations. So it's a bit of a time coming out of that heavily indulgent season to do that kind of self-assessment. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't like the timing because it falls really closely to when people talk about doing New Year's resolutions. Mm. That's pretty contentious. A lot of people struggle with it. The point of it, though, is to just take a break and to reassess the role of alcohol in your life. And it can happen at other times, too. You know, more recently, folks have been to- talking about sober October, or you could really do it any time in the year. But the notion here is a, a bit of a health check, you know, stop drinking for a period. It could be a few days, weeks, month, um, and, and kind of pay attention to how that break from alcohol has affected you. It might prompt you to think about what's the place of alcohol in your life? Is it bringing you pleasure or causing you problems? Is it something that adds to the quality of your life? Or maybe you want to approach it differently, maybe not stop drinking entirely, yeah. but to change when or where or how much you drink. So I think it can be really useful as that step towards better self-awareness and ultimately better health. Yeah, uh, Paul, let me jump into the fray here with my experience. Uh, uh, I have, uh, you know, had one or two drinks per day, probably for decades, and um, never binge drinking, uh, uh, unless we go back mm-hmm. to perhaps my teens, I'll be honest about that. But mm-hmm. but um, I was surprised, and this dry January I'm taking part in, I've had the, the same insights that I've had in previous times when I've stopped for altogether, how you need to be more, really prevent it from becoming just an automatic habit. Become more intentional. If you can, if you decide you can drink alcohol, don't do it just because you do it every day, right? Life is fun, and it's just as enjoyable without alcohol. And Don, that's the experience you had, right? Definitely. Uh, You know, I, I thought that alcohol would be that it enhanced life. After being sober for a while, I I started to wonder what was it about me that I couldn't enjoy things without having my perception somewhat distorted, without having my emotions numbed. Uh, You know what? There's a a saying in in AA about, you know, facing life on life's terms. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I, you know, what... What had been an attraction then became, you know, something that I felt, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I've gotten past that. Mm-hmm. Kim, let's go to Kim in Cedar Rapids. Uh, she's uh, called in with her experience. Hi, Kim. What does this conversation say to you in particular? What does it raise in your mind? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Is this Kim? No, it's with a T. It's Tim. Tim, sorry, okay. we, we copied that down. Tim, forgive, yeah. forgive us. Uh, Tim, welcome to the program. Uh, what's your experience? Hey, thanks. Not a problem. That's cool. Go ahead. Oh, well, I can only underscore and echo what the two of you have said, that uh, as uh, alcoholics and as a culture at large, we're, we're fed this message of, hey, this is fun. It's going to be even more fun 
if you've had seven or eight beers. Well, of course, no, that's not the case at all. And I, I think I've, what's maybe finally gotten me out of the woods, and I've been sober close to a year this time around. I've had other sober stretches at different times. Uh, I think I'm really tuning into what it feels like to not drink. In fact, my standard joke is I'm a new on a new prescription called no booze at all. And that means, uh, you know, if you quit drinking, you, you feel better, you look better, you lose weight, you have more energy. You remember the night before, if there were a pill, a prescription that did all that, well, by golly, we'd be asking our doctors if uh, no booze at all was right for me. <laughs> well, congratulations <laughs> to you, Tim, Tim with a T in, in Cedar Rapids. Uh, we continue, uh, wish you continued su- success. Thanks. You know, hey, thanks, Tim brings thanks a up the... always, always a good, good show. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Bye now. Yeah, go ahead. Tim mentioned a couple of things that I think are are key about this whole experiment with dry January or taking a break. That a lot of people notice really quickly differences in their health. They sleep better. They have more energy. They might maybe lose weight. That there, there are some pretty quick effects. And maybe you want to make changes so that these are permanent, you know, benefits or, or recalibrate your relationship to alcohol. But the other thing I'll just interject here too, that I think dry January is really geared towards preventing problems from developing. And that, that's in the spirit of public health. We'd rather prevent the crisis or the outbreak or the problem uh, than deal with it later. So this is really geared towards folks who may be earlier in the stages of starting to drink too mm-hmm. much too often, maybe having negative experiences uh, and can perhaps on their own, recalibrate, change their relationship, maybe give it up uh, entirely. Yeah, and, and, and echoing what Don said earlier in the program is once you give it up, uh, no matter what level of drinking you do, and I experienced this for sure as someone who looked forward to anyone who's listened to this program probably knows I'm a, I'm a big fan of craft beer. You know, going and deciding, oh, what craft beer would I have tonight for my one or two drinks that was a, uh, uh, something I looked forward to. And I, it, by stopping, Paul, that's when I realized, wow, I, I think about that. I enjoy it. Not that I won't enjoy it in the future, but is that what you mean by sort of preventing um, the development of, of, of something developing uh, that could be worse? Exactly, yeah. So not continuing on the same trajectory of drinking uh, as often, maybe you know, less frequent, maybe saving things for special occasions. If you're, if somebody decides to continue drinking that it's uh, for special occasions or certain events or in certain conditions. Um, Cause that is one of the risks is the more that you drink, um, the more health problems will come along. And in some cases we know that even small, low level exposures can have uh, risks. Uh, alcohol is associated with a number of cancers heart problems, mental decline. Uh, and these are things that might not show up until years and decades later. But if you have a period of regular sustained heavy drinking, that that can have some pretty substantial effects later on in your life. It's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, Paul, because we've all heard the stories over the years, you know, oh, that one glass of red wine per day is actually good for your health. What does the latest research tell us about one glass of red wine or one beer, the the lowest level of drinking? That is a great question because there's a lot of confusion and the research has been evolving pretty rapidly. So the basic approach is that there is no safe level of drinking. Um, 
there's nothing that we could say is safe or zero risk. We do know that there are lower or higher levels of risk. Um, and we recommend that people drink with national guidelines that are developed by the Food and Drug Administration and Department of Agriculture. So no more than one drink per day for women or two drinks per day for men, although that two drinks limit is debated right now, um, or no more than seven drinks over a week or 14 drinks over a week for women or men, respectively. But even at low levels, um, there's been more and more evidence that it is associated with some of these other health outcomes, especially longer term health problems. Early on, and this started in about the 1980s, there was some research that suggested some benefits from red wine for heart disease. Now, this was very specific, one type of beverage for one particular health outcome. But as we've done more and more research, we're seeing that the balance is really lopsided, um, that with the evidence about connections to cancer, Alzheimer's or other mental disorders, even psychological disorders, depression, and the immediate effects relationship with car crashes, interpersonal violence, risky sexual behavior, the balance is really tipped that there are more harms associated with alcohol than any potential benefits. So there's no recommendation ever to drink, but if you do choose to drink, if you're of age, if you have no complicating conditions, it's not prohibited because of medication, you may be pregnant or, or anything like that, to stay within those recommendations of low level drinking, it's presumed to be low risk, but we can't guarantee no risk. Mm -hmm. Paul Gilbert of the University of Iowa College of Public Health, uh, his work specializes in studying alcohol use and misuse. Paul, how do you, how do you discern if you, if you think, well, I may have a problem, you know, I think we can tell from this conversation going without alcohol can never be a, a bad decision, as, as we're hearing in sort of testimonials, and you can you can just find that. But But how do you know if you should absolutely just cut off alcohol completely or whether well, you're capable of, you know, more intentional drinking and limited drinking? That's a great question. I'll start with uh, a, a bit of an explanation of the diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. This is a, a formal diagnosis that a doctor or psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor could make based on 11 different criteria that we look at, which really are about the effects of your drinking, failure to fulfill work or family or other social obligations, but also some physical effects, development of tolerance, um, withdrawal symptoms if you don't have alcohol. Um, it's not so much about the amounts, the quantity or the times that you're drinking, but what alcohol is doing on your body and in your life. So that is actually a diagnosable condition. But a lot of people may be getting into this grayer range of a little too much, a little too often. It's not yet a disorder. It's not yet mm -hmm. a diagnosable problem, but it would be better to cut back. One way that you can do it, there's a great website online called Rethinking Drinking. It's put out by the Institutes of Health. It's a really nice user-friendly format, but it can kind of walk you through what do we consider low-risk versus high-risk drinking. It kind of helps you do a self-assessment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in so many cases, it is a personal decision. Do you want to cut it out entirely? Do you want to seek professional help, counseling, rehabilitation, or, or medication-assisted therapy, or, or maybe try mutual help groups, support groups like AA, 12-step groups, or maybe you just take a break for a bit and recalibrate. But the Rethinking Drinking website is a really useful resource. Paul, before now, we'll say one other thing. Yeah, quickly. Mm -hmm. We're we're coming up on the end of the hour. Quickly, please. Yep. 
Your Life Iowa is a resource. If you are looking for help, you can call them. You can look them up online. They've got a website. Your Life Iowa can help you find resources for help. Okay, on the web, Rethinking Drinking or Your Life Iowa. Good tips. Uh, We don't have much time, Paul, but I have to ask, how has the increasing acceptance and legalization of cannabis in various states shaped alcohol use and misuse? That is a great question, and again, an area where there's a lot of research and we're still early in the stages. In a number of jurisdictions, we've made policy changes before we really understand the health effects. Um, And an active question is whether people may be switching. So if if they can use cannabis instead of alcohol, would they substitute it or would they use it together Mm -hmm. concurrently? We do have pretty good evidence that concurrent use leads to worse health outcomes. It kind of follows. It makes intuitive sense, I think, two or more substances together could have worse health uh, effects. But boy, that's a big open area that we don't really know a whole lot about what the health effects would be with legalized or decriminalized recreational cannabis. Yep. Paul, we'll check back in with you in the coming months and years on that. It sounds like uh, research to be done. Don McLeese, thank you so much for this memoir, Slippery Steps, Rolling and Tumbling Toward Sobriety. We have just a couple of seconds left. Any thoughts to leave us with, Don? No, thank thank you so much for for having me on. The one thing that crossed my mind when you were talking about one or two drinks— my perception was such that when I was limiting myself to one or two br- drinks, I would just start getting larger glasses. Uh, so, if, you know, there's always a way to, to kind of game the right. system if you're trying to. Don McLeese, thank you. Paul Gilbert of the University of Iowa College of Public Health, thank you. Thank you. That discussion originally broadcast in January of 2023. River to River is produced by Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.